Welcome to the Head to the Bar podcast. What you're about to hear is provided for general information purposes and support only, and it's not legal education, and it's certainly not legal advice. You should independently check the details that we're just about to discuss. Now, in today's discussion, we're going to continue looking at criminal procedure, and I plan to cover the discussion of committal proceedings and trial procedure. And there's really no easy way of saying this. It really involves a discussion of a very, very long sequence of provisions from the Criminal Procedure Act. So it's not the most riveting of material, but I'll try to add some editorial comments as I go. We will postpone our discussion of appeals and finish up that little topic till the next discussion. And in the next discussion, we'll also have a look at bail, which is a little bit more interesting and, but no less practical, I suppose, than what I'm just about to address. Different aspects of committal procedure and trial procedure are assessed every single time. So that's the necessity for why we have to go through it in such close detail. So the starting point is, of course, the Criminal Procedure Act. And where we look at committal proceedings, we start with part four before moving into trial proceedings, which are dealt with in part five and following. Now, Victoria is one of the few states that still enjoys uh, committal proceedings that are fairly close to how they used to be in earlier times. So if you move on to practice in other states, you'll find that they've been abridged either in a legal sense or a very practical sense to a point where Victorians would barely recognise them. So in Victoria, though, we still use these quite extensively, though there are some limitations that I'll talk about, uh, particularly in relation to sex uh, cases in which there's a child complainant or a cognitively impaired complainant, in which case there's no entitlement whatsoever to be able to cross-examine such a complainant at a committal proceeding. And instead, uh, when we come to trial proceedings, um, I'll deal with the procedures available in those cases. You'll see from slide two that the purpose of committal proceedings is traditionally related to the administrative part of the court's jurisdiction rather than strictly judicial. So traditionally, it allows the accused to identify and receive disclosure of the prosecution case. If you've spent time in a criminal court, you'll appreciate that part of the forensic utility of the committal is really to identify the parts of the chronology that might be able to be verified or undermined by disclosure through a form of either a request to the prosecution or perhaps via the use of subpoenas. And separately, it allows testing to see whether there is sufficient evidence to support a conviction. There is the facility of a magistrate to discharge of an accused at the end of a committal on a particular charge or more than one charge if the evidence taken at its highest fails to support a sufficient proof to justify the involvement of a jury. And here I'm paraphrasing. The relevant case law has been noted on slide two two important High Court decisions uh, that have been applied many times in many later cases, Barton and the Queen from 1980 and Grasby and the Queen from 1989. So that's the forensic utility of a committal proceeding. Then we turn to matters procedural and commencing um, with section 97, you can see that the purposes of the hearing are stated in the Act. 
and they relate to that forensic utility of determining whether a charge could be heard and determined summarily, yeah. moving on to the, the Barton and Graspy point to determine whether there's evidence of sufficient weight to support a conviction for the offence charged, and also to determine how the accused proposes to plead to the charge. It may be that after um, cross-examination, a committal and accused will recognise the strength of the prosecution case instead of the weaknesses of the prosecution case. So it may indeed have that forensic utility as well. And fourthly and finally, to ensure a fair trial in the matters set out in Section 97, Paragraph D. In Victoria, committal proceedings must be held in all cases where the accused is charged with an indictable offence, except, of course, where a direct indictment is filed or the charge is heard and determined summarily. So relating back to what we were looking at in the last discussion with respect to summary procedures, really we're dealing with a cohort of cases that involve indictable charges which must proceed in the committal stream and are eventually destined for the county court or the supreme court because the magistrate's court doesn't have jurisdiction to hear them and there's also that cohort of cases where the accused has been charged with an indictable offence that can be heard and determined summarily but the accused has declined to consent to summary proceedings and or the magistrate has decided that it's not suitable for summary resolution. So that large group of cases will proceed in the committal stream. And it may be like we looked at in the mention list, that the matter proceeds to a full-blown contested committal, but that's not necessarily going to be the case for reasons I'll discuss. The commencement of a matter in the committal's stream, referred to as a committal proceeding in section 98 of the Act, starts up at the commencement of a filing hearing. So you remember from our last discussion, we talked about mentions, uh, possibly progressing to, progressing to contest mentions, then possibly progressing to, to contested hearings. In the committal stream, the procedure is to start with a filing hearing, then move on to a committal mention, and then the matter can proceed to a contested committal though it doesn't necessarily need to. If the matter resolves as a plea of guilty, then at the committal mention or subsequently, the matter can then just proceed by way of hand-up brief. Or even if the accused intends to plead not guilty but they don't wish to take advantage of the committal proceeding, the matter can then proceed by way of straight hand-up brief on a plea of not guilty might sound confusing, it will become more clear in due course. But for this point, if you've got your pencil out and you're working on your maths and your successive procedures, it's filing hearing to committal mention, committal mention to committal. But for, at the point of the committal mention, the accused could plead guilty or not guilty and proceed straight up to the county or the Supreme Court. And indeed, at the end of the committal proceeding, same, the accused can indicate their intention to plead guilty or not guilty and be committed to the higher court. The outcomes will be that either the accused is committed to stand trial or, as mentioned, that they are discharged from further attendance um, if the magistrate is not satisfied that there's evidence of sufficient weight to support a conviction for the offence charged. Now at slide four, section 100 of the Criminal Procedure Act, you'll see that there are additional hearings beyond the filing hearing, the committal mention and the committal hearing. A special mention can be heard at any time in relation to particular matters such as funding, availability of witnesses and so forth. 
Note also a committal case conference, which allows the magistrate to assist with management as well as their administrative functions. So a committal case conference, you might think bears some similarities to a contest mention hearing, although the magistrate, if they're dealing with indictable matters that must proceed in the indictable stream, wouldn't be able finally to resolve the matters because the magistrate doesn't have that jurisdiction to hear matters such as rape or armed robbery or murder, while they can assist at a case conference with management and uh, give certain indications as to how the matter should proceed. Of course, unlike a contest mention, the accused couldn't enter a plea of guilty and have their matter finally determined in the magistrate's court if they're charged with murder. So they're the various uh, denotations of hearing. The ones that are most popularly used, of course, are filing hearing and committal mention, which are used in every single indictable matter. And then we see the committal hearing for matters proceeding to some form of uh, contest in relation to that committal and committal case conference. Now, looking at filing hearings under slide five, this will be nothing new to practitioners who are used to appearing in these hearings, but I expect there'll be quite a few who'd never appeared in one before. A filing hearing is quite straightforward under section 101. It is the first hearing of the matter and the magistrate will only fix a date for a committal mention hearing fix a time for service of a hand-up brief, which were the compilation of all of the evidence that the police or prosecution intend to rely on, and make any order or give any direction that the court considers appropriate. So it's a purely administrative hearing for the allocation of other dates and occasionally the making of other orders. Time limits are very short. So if the accused has been arrested and remanded in custody, or even granted bail, the filing hearing must be within seven days after the filing of the charge sheet. If a summons to answer a charge is issued, then it must be within 28 days of the date of filing of the charge. Now, the next point in the chronology is service of the hand-up brief, which is referred to in the Criminal Procedure Act as pre-hearing disclosure of the prosecution case. You'll remember our discussion of the various preliminary briefs and um, uh, the you know, more expanded version in summary proceedings. The equivalent for a matter proceeding in the committal stream is referred to as a hand-up brief, and it's governed by Part 4.4 of the Criminal Procedure Act. So once again, we're dealing with these indictable matters that either can't or won't in the circumstances of the case be heard and, and determined summarily. So the matters that must be included are foreshadowed at slide six and then are discussed in more detail at slide seven. So slide seven, section 107, the police informant is obliged to serve a hand-up brief and, of course, that would be in the time limit set by the magistrate at the filing hearing. And the hand-up brief must be served, section 1081, at least 42 days before the, the committal mention hearing, unless the magistrate's court fixes another period for service or the accused dispenses with that period for service. The contents of the hand-up brief are specified in section 110, discussed at slide 8. So there are certain notices that must be offered and then it must include a charge sheet that relates to the alleged offence and a statement of material facts relevant to each charge. 
which is fine if there's one charge or a couple of charges. It can become very voluminous if there's a long series of charges. And slide nine, a long list, any information, document or thing on which the prosecution intends to rely in the committal proceeding, including, for instance, statements of each witness, uh, transcripts or copies of any audio recording or audiovisual recording, a list of persons who have made statements that the informant intends to tender at the committal hearing, if there has been a compulsory examination, then a transcript of the recording of the examination and a list of exhibits, clear photographs of proposed exhibits, descriptions of forensic procedure and so on and so forth. So in most cases, the hand-up brief is eventually a very detailed document. So at that point, the accused has received the hand-up brief and the prosecution and defence practitioners, exactly as you would expect, will read and consider it closely and may choose to relate the evidence contained in each statement, each exhibit, each transcript, back to each charge or charges that they're relied upon to support. Note slide 11, 111 of the Criminal Procedure Act, of course, there's an ongoing obligation of disclosure. So if there are additional documents that would fall within the classification of the obligation to provide, the informant must supplement the hand-up brief as has been delivered with those document statements, etc. Next is at least seven days before the committal mention date. So as far as process, we've gone through the filing hearing and received the hand-up brief six weeks prior to the committal mention date and another five weeks have passed until we're at the juncture of seven days before the committal mention date. At that point, slide 13, the accused possibly their legal representatives and the informant or the DPP must jointly file a case direction notice, which is in Form 32 of the Magistrates Court Criminal Procedure Rules. Under slide 9, section 118, note, of course, that because this is a joint document, it obliges defence and the prosecution to liaise. And what is intended to be included in that document in the prescribed form is a specification of the procedure by which it's proposed that the matter be dealt with. So that's point one. We're now at slide 14. So it could be a straight adjournment or it could be that the accused intends to proceed by way of hand-up brief directly to a superior court, either on an indication of a plea of guilty or not guilty. Or it could be that it's proposed that the matter be adjourned for a further committal mention, or it could be an adjournment for committal case conference, or it could be adjourned for contested committal. If it is intended that the matter be adjourned for contested committal and it is proposed that the accused wishes to cross-examine witnesses, then see slide 14, section 119C. It must state the names of those witnesses that the accused intends to seek leave to cross-examine and the accused or their legal practitioners are obliged to pinpoint each issue for which leave to cross-examine is sought the reason why the evidence of the particular witness is relevant to the particular issue and the reason why cross-examination of the witness on the issue is justified. 
So if you have one of these in practice or in the bar exam, what you need to do is identify what the facts in issue are. What, so what is the response to the charges? And then you separately think how the particular witness you're asking to be cross-examined has given evidence that is somehow disputed and somehow closely relates to those facts in issue. The prosecution will have either indicated their lack of opposition to the particular witness being called at the contested committal, or they could oppose, but in any event, it's an obligation separately, of course, that the magistrate grants that leave at the committal mention that comes. Suffice to say that the Act and the rules and practice require a practitioner or an accused to be as specific as they possibly can. So that's where in the pro that proper reading of Section 119, you really need to have a concept of what the issue is, why the evidence of the particular witness is relevant to the particular issue, and then separately the reason why cross-examination of the issue is justified. So if, for instance, the issue is one of identification and the witness actually gives that identification evidence, you then need to go on and demonstrate what is either opposed or in dispute about the particular witness's evidence. So sink into that level of detail. Now note section 124, which is mentioned at slide 15. The court will not allow cross-examination unless they're satisfied that those preconditions are met. And that's the reason for the case direction notice. It requires the parties really to concentrate on why the court should, should grant that leave. 120 allows a late application for leave to cross-examine witnesses, but suffice to say that there is that legislative prohibition on witnesses being called unless uh, leave is granted. Moving on to slide 18, which takes one through the, the committal mention hearing under section 125 of the Act, this is really where the magistrate has that capacity to influence the procedure that follows. So I'd foreshadowed that there are a number of options that can be um, entered into at the committal mention hearing, and it's, it's quite a detailed substantive hearing preceded by that case direction notice. Seeing section 125, the court can determine the committal proceeding on that occasion. It can offer a summary hearing if there are uh, indictable matters that can resolve summarily. It can hear and determine an application for leave to cross-examine a witness and either allow that application or refuse the application. If leave is granted to cross-examine a witness, the matter may then be fixed in for a committal hearing. And there are other administrative matters that can take place on the same occasion or the case can be adjourned. So the committal mention hearing um, is really in comparison to the filing hearing, an occasion in which quite a lot of management takes place and, of course, those substantive applications can be granted. Section 126 of the Criminal Procedure Act, discussed at slide 19, indicates that there are time limits for holding committal mentions, sex offences, as we'll learn um, in relation not only to, to this area, but also in relation to trial procedures, have strict time limits. So the committal mention hearing in the case of a sex offence must be within three months after the commencement of the criminal proceeding by the filing of the charge or in a case not involving a sexual offence, the time limits are six months from commencement of the criminal proceeding. 
The Magistrates Court does have that discretion to fix a longer period for the holding of a commit or mention hearing if it's in the interests of justice, um, having regard to the seriousness of the offence and why in particular a longer period is required. It may be that the prosecution is encountering absent witnesses or there might be scientific evaluation that's outstanding and so forth. We move on to the committal case conference, section 127, which is dealt with at slide 20. This is not held in every single case. So many matters will resolve at committal mention and the accused may be uh, asked to enter, receive a committal caution, asked to enter a plea of guilty or not guilty and the matter proceeds into the indictable stream in the county or Supreme Court. In some matters, the parties might agree or the magistrate may urge that the matter be booked in from committal mention to committal case conference. And the purpose of such a hearing is managerial. It's without prejudice, 127 subsection 3, and it's intended to allow the parties and the magistrate to robustly test the evidence without the calling of witnesses and the inferences that are available from the evidence. So it's an effective case management tool that came, its genesis was with the Criminal Procedure Act, which is used effectively if, for instance, there might be a problem locking down evidence in relation to particular charges or where discussions between the parties can continue with a view to a, a charge resolution before the committal jurisdiction ends. And that is um, the committal jurisdiction will end with that committal caution and the matter proceeding um, on the plea of guilty or not guilty into the indictable court. So moving on to slide 21, as I've mentioned, not every case is booked in for committal hearing, but for matters in which the hand-up brief has been served, um, the matter, matter has proceeded through committal mention and there's been an application to cross-examine witnesses which has been granted, the matter may then be listed for contested committal hearing, or it could even be a committal on a legal issue. So it doesn't need to be with witnesses being called. It could be submissions purely on the hand-up brief or what's referred to as an informant-only committal. So sometimes the only witness that's requested is the police informant um, who can give evidence as to the sequence observed in compiling the hand-up brief. That might be a sufficient evidentiary basis for the defence to make other applications. The test that the court applies at committal hearing is to determine whether there is evidence of sufficient weight to support a conviction on each particular charge. The evidence must be taken at its highest, so the magistrate in making that determination must not engage in any inquiry with respect to each witness's credibility or reliability. It's purely whether there is material contained in the hand-up brief that is sufficient to support a conviction on each particular charge. Otherwise, the accused would be discharged in relation to that particular charge and it could be that there's nothing left at the end. So though it's an administrative determination, if successful, it would result uh, in a practical discontinuation of each of the charges before uh, the court. Section 128 of the Criminal Procedure Act, which is mentioned at slide 22, notes that the Magistrates Court still has that opportunity to offer a summary hearing. It still has the opportunity to involve an application for summary resolution, assuming that there are charges, a charge or more than one charge, that can be heard and determined summarily. 
There are a number of procedural provisions um, contained at slide 23 and 24. Just a general observation, it probably goes without saying, but where there has been on the case direction notice an issue identified and leave has been granted on the basis of that issue and um, the issue to which it relates and the justification of questions in relation to that issue, in the ordinary course under section 132, which is at slide 24 of the slides, then the accused is confined to asking questions in cross-examination on that issue. So it's as simple as that. The accused or their legal representative may seek leave to cross-examine witnesses on different issues, but without that leave, they can't conduct a broad cross-examination of the witness. The committal is confined to the issues, issue or issues on which leave has been granted. And see slide 25, which just repeats the procedure that, um, is, uh, that takes place and the orders that the court may make at the conclusion of the hearing. So discharge the accused or commit the accused for trial, or it could be that the evidence is of sufficient weight to support a conviction for an indictable offence other than the offence with which the accused is charged. But primarily, the determinations will either be to commit the accused for trial on a particular charge or discharge the accused. Section 141, which is at slide 27, is used overwhelmingly, which is that determination of committal proceeding where hand-up brief is used. So it could be at a committal proceeding, it could be prior to that, at a committal mention, for instance, but where a hand-up brief has been served, um, then the magistrate provides the accused with a caution, which is outlined in 1412, which explains the significance of the committal and what takes place at the conclusion. And then see uh, slide 28 and following, the magistrate's court then proceeds to make its determination. The accused must enter a plea of guilty or not guilty to each charge. So historically, it used to be the case that um, the accused could withhold their plea at the conclusion of committal proceedings. Now it's either or, it's either a plea of guilty or not guilty. That's not the same as an arraignment. The arraignment that takes place in the superior court is the ultimate plea, but it's taken down as an indication uh, whether the accused has pleaded guilty or not guilty, and that is recorded and may be used as an admission against the accused at a later time. So on that basis, let us assume that the accused has been committed to stand trial under section 144, which is dealt with at slide 32. At that point, we move to the Superior Court and we start talking about the rules of indictment. So now we are firmly in trial procedure and we've moved past committal procedure. So in relation to trial procedure, we might start with the rules of indictment. With drafting indictments, you'll note that they are drafted in accordance with the same rules as charge sheets, and we dealt with this in, in the last discussion. So an indictment must be drafted in accordance with those rules and set out in accordance with Schedule 1, and that commences the process in the Superior Court. Um, you'll note from slide 33 that the indictment may be amended by the order of the court, 
and there is the capacity for charges, uh, separate charges to be uh, heard separately or together. Now, at this point in relation to trial procedure, there are a number of disparate provisions um, that I need to deal with, even though it feels like there's little logic to the way that they all link together. We'll get into a rhythm in a couple of minutes, but firstly, I'll deal with these introductory provisions that are, all seem to be vastly different. Next is discontinuing a prosecution. So in relation to a particular charge or in relation to more than one charge, a complete indictment, the DPP has the power to discontinue a prosecution under Section 177. Note, please, that this does not amount to an acquittal. There's been no adjudication on the facts. So if the DPP announces um, a discontinuance in court or files a notice of discontinuance, the accused must proceed with some caution because it's without prejudice to the reinitiation of the proceedings at a later stage. So assuming that the accused has been committed to a superior court after the committal procedure or the prosecution has directly indicted the accused, so pausing there, it's not unheard of for the prosecution to choose to indict an accused directly and most commonly, although still a fairly small proportion of cases, that might happen where an accused has been charged with indictable, an indictable offence or indictable offences. The matter has proceeded through the committal stream and ultimately a magistrate has decided to discharge the accused. That decision to discharge is not a procedural bar to the prosecution directly indicting the accused in the county or the Supreme Court. Now, if, but more, much more commonly, this commencement in the Superior Court happens after the committal proceeding. Now, a number of provisions are extracted at slide 35. Note that the court may conduct one or more directions hearings under section 179. So we are well and truly in an era of judicial management as well as judicial adjudication. Before a trial is heard, a judicial manager may conduct usually two directions hearings, one upon commencement, one closer to the commencement of trial. And that might involve the sorts of directions given or orders made by a judicial uh, officer under section 181. The court considers necessary for the fair and efficient conduct of the proceeding. So the types of matters that are normally um, heard at directions hearings and um, orders are made in those directions hearings include requiring the accused to indicate whether they're legally represented, requiring the accused or their legal representative to confirm that funding is in place for pre-trial and at trial. The judge can require parties to identify pre-trial issues and estimate how long the adjudication of those pre-trial matters is likely to take. Typically, the judge will ask about the expected length of the trial, the number of witnesses and their availability, and so forth. Pre-trial disclosure is also managed in this list. So if, for instance, the accused has issued a subpoena, then the release of the subpoenaed material or the opposition to such release is dealt with in this pre-trial process. 
the link to the relevant part of the Judicial College of Victoria Victorian Criminal Proceedings Manual is included at slide 35, which summarises very effectively the process of initial directions hearings and final directions hearings that are managed by the county court and the parallel process that takes place in the Supreme Court and what in particular happens at each of those hearings. So prior to trial, documents are to be filed, slide 36, and these are observed by the court to the letter. Section 182, the prosecutor must file with the court and serve on the accused 28 days before the first day of trial. A summary of prosecution opening, which outlines the manner in which the prosecution will put the case against the accused and the acts, facts, matters and circumstances being relied on to support a finding of guilt. So that summary of prosecution opening will be trial counsel's evaluation of each of the relevant parts of the evidence that are relied on in support of guilt at trial. And typically that document is accompanied by a notice of pre-trial admissions which identifies, and here I'm paraphrasing, the types of matters that the prosecution might submit should be accepted by an accused without the need for further proof, such as, for instance, continuity of exhibits. So if forensic samples have been taken, then the continuity of those exhibits all the way through to their analysis and their subsequent storage, you might think that the accused wouldn't necessarily take issues with that or the prosecution might say. So the continuity of exhibits might be itemised in that notice of pretrial admissions, possibly surveillance witnesses, possibly the identification of voices on audio material. Section 183 of the Criminal Procedure Act then obliges the accused 14 days after service of the summary of prosecution opening to file with the court and serve on the prosecution a response to that summary, identifying the acts, facts, matters and circumstances with which issue is taken and the basis on which issue is taken, but not the identity of any witness other than any expert witness to be called by the accused or, and it doesn't oblige, identification of whether the accused will give evidence. Pre-trial disclosure continued. The prosecution must provide the depositions. Now, this is a more formal version with uh, annexures of the hand-up brief. So you start with the documents that were formed part of the hand-up brief upon which the accused was committed and annexed to that document are the transcripts of evidence and statements admitted let's focus on the transcript of evidence um, in evidence at the committal and the recording, the transcript of the recording of the committal. So it would usually involve the hand-up brief and then the transcript of the committal proceedings. And the prosecution is under a continuing obligation of disclosure, section 185. There is a facility under section 188 to allow the prosecution to rely on a notice of intention to call additional evidence. So if, for instance, a witness were to come forth or be identified or a statement taken after the accused was committed to stand trial, then that would be dealt with uh, extraneously to the depositions. It would be dealt with by way of that notice of additional evidence. And I'd referred earlier to the example of a scientific analysis, which might not have been concluded at the point of the committal. The expert witness's statement might end up becoming part of the uh, prosecution case by way of that notice of additional evidence. 
Now, like in summary proceedings, the defence is under a limited obligation with respect to pre-trial disclosure. So with the defence response, they've provided a response to the summary of prosecution opening. Aside from that, no indications need to be given and no evidence needs to be disclosed, except for the two exceptions, which are the analogue of summary proceedings, expert evidence and alibi. So the provisions of the Criminal Procedure Act that relate to expert evidence in trial proceedings are summarised at uh, slide 38. So if expert evidence is going to be relied upon by the accused, then they must provide to the prosecution and file in court the statement of any expert witness at least 14 days before day one of trial, section 189 of the Criminal Procedure Act. And in county court proceedings, that's supplemented by the County Court Criminal Division Practice Note, which um, obliges any expert report to be in certain form, which I've summarised at slide 38. Alibi is dealt with in section 190 and following, which is summarised in slide 39. So if the accused wishes to rely upon evidence of an alibi, then the evidence um, must be summarised in a notice of alibi under section 190. And this, the time limit for filing and service of the notice of alibi is not dated by reference to day one of trial, like the expert witness obligation. Instead, the notice of alibi must be filed and served within 14 days of the accused being committed to stand trial. Now here at slide 40, we return to the context of um, a number of provisions brought together. The court has broad discretion in relation to pretrial orders, which can be made by the court during this period, whilst the parties and the court wait, await day one of trial. Could be change of venue, section 192. It could be, more commonly, separate trial, section 193, separation of the charges from one another separation of multiple accused from being heard in the same trial. And I've referred to section 194, the presumption in sex cases that two or more charges will be heard together. And section 195, less common, a presumption of severance of conspiracy charge from a substantive charge that relates to that same agreement. The other commonly made order, commonly sought order pre-trial, is an order for legal representation, section 197 which is the what used to be called the Dietrich Order under common law. There is a batch of provisions that deal with the taking of evidence pre-trial. Firstly, slide 41, section 198. So if it is thought that a witness will be unavailable to give evidence at trial or the parties agree that the evidence of the person should be taken before trial or for any other reason the court considers it appropriate under section 198, the court may make an order to pre-record the evidence of a witness. So that witness's evidence will be heard in court, usually on a video recording, it could be an audio recording, and then their evidence is later accepted after the trial commences as if the evidence were given live. Other related procedures, 198A, an accused may apply to cross-examine a witness in a sex case so this is, without going through too much of the backstory, in sexual cases, because the complainant, if they were a child in particular or cognitively impaired, may not be able to be cross-examined at committal often, 
an application needs to be made in the county court to cross-examine witnesses who in an old, older era might have given their evidence at a committal hearing. So 198A, an application is made pre-trial to cross-examine a witness other than a complainant who is a child or cognitively impaired in a sex case and the court considers that cross-examination on a particular issue is justified, then that order can be made and the witness may be cross-examined uh, in that hearing pre-trial and then perhaps again at trial. And 198B, which is the current version of what a common law used to be called a basher procedure, which is now abolished under 198C. So that is any application where the the accused applies to cross-examine a witness and the court is satisfied it's necessary to allow that cross-examination in order to avoid a serious risk that the trial would be unfair. And such a case might arise where a witness has arisen after committal and may have been dealt with by way of a notice of additional evidence. So the accused hasn't had the opportunity to cross-examine uh, that witness at committal because their statement wasn't then available and wishes to take that opportunity before the jury is impanelled. That's now dealt with under 198B. And in that same period of time, pre-trial, 199 and following, the court can hear and decide any issue with respect to the trial. So it could be pre-trial rulings, it could be issues of law or procedure or management that require orders sought or rulings to be made. Now, just as in summary proceedings, the superior courts have the opportunity to give sentence indications, but unlike in the magistrate's court, slide 43, the indication that's given is simply confined to an indication by a, a judge that if the accused pleaded guilty to a charge on the indictment or all of the charges on indictment, the court would be likely to impose either a sentence of imprisonment that commences immediately or not. You may remember that in summary proceedings, the magistrate's court on an indication could also give an indication as to the likely class of penalty, but not so in the county or the Supreme Court, simply immediate custody or not, section 207. Preconditions 208, it's the accused is the only party that may apply and it can only be given with the prosecution consent. And even if the accused applies and the prosecution consents, the court may still refuse to give a sentence indication. And you'll see the effect of the indication at section 209. So there are a few contingencies here. So if the indication is that the court would not impose immediate custody, and then the accused pleads guilty at the first available opportunity, the court must not impose a sentence of imprisonment that would commence immediately. And also in section 209, if the indication is of immediate imprisonment, any ensuing trial must proceed before a different judge. Slide 44, commencement of trial occurs when the accused pleads not guilty on arraignment in the presence of the jury panel, section 210. So this is a point that comes up from time to time, which is when does trial commence? There's a few points that come behind this, and that is covered at the second bullet point at slide 44. So trial will only commence where the accused is pleading not guilty and is proceeding to trial by jury. So from time to time, bar exam candidates are asked about arraignment and assume 
that if an accused is pleading guilty, then the court needs to convene a jury for the plea of guilty to be entered at arraignment. But that's not the case. So as I've included at the second bullet point, if the accused is pleading guilty, the accused is then arraigned before a judge at a directions hearing, or it could be at the commencement of the plea and mitigation of penalty. You don't need a jury panel if the accused is pleading guilty. It's only on trial, that is, where the accused is pleading not guilty, where the arraignment must take place in the presence of the jury panel. And arraignment is the process in which the court asks the accused whether they're the person named on the indictment and reads out each charge and asks whether the accused pleads guilty or not guilty, section 215. Slide 44, note it would be very rare for this to come up in the exam, but there's the capacity for the court to receive a written plea under section 216 if the accused has been arraigned on the first charge. And here I'm paraphrasing, so you'd be best to go to the words of the Act. The accused has then had the opportunity prior to um, the arraignment to read carefully through the charges and admit their responsibility. So just as in relation to committals, time limits for commencement of trial are included in the Criminal Procedure Act. Uh, see slide 45. As with committal proceedings, sexual offences are dealt with more expeditiously under Section 212 than for offences other than sexual offences. So have a look at those time limits, Section 211 for offences other than a sexual offence and 212 of the Criminal Procedure Act for sexual offences. So the accused then has been arraigned before the jury panel and the jury has been empanelled from that panel. The last point of discussion in today's discussion is trial procedure and it is similar to what we looked at in summary procedure except there's a jury involved. So for trial procedure in a criminal matter, slide 46 and following, starting with 222 and 223, the judge can address the jury on the issues that have or are to arise essentially at any time. So ordinarily, the trial judge gives opening remarks to the jury once they're empanelled about their role, the matter that they're about to hear and the issues that will arise for their determination. And the trial judge can revisit those points at any point during the trial. And 223, the judge can also order in the running that copies of relevant documents like the indictment, like the transcripts and jury guides can be offered to the jury. You can have a look at those provisions, but that may include, for instance, summaries of the elements of the charged act, summaries of the relevant law and so forth. Once a jury is empanelled, slide 47, the prosecutor must give an opening address, section 224, and the prosecutor here is confined to the matters set out in pretrial documents, summary of prosecution opening, except in exceptional circumstances. And here, immediately after the finish of the opening, the prosecutor's opening address, section 225, if the accused is legally represented, they must give a response to the opening. If the accused is self-represented, they may give a response to the opening. And the purpose of the response is to identify for the jury's consideration matters that are in dispute. So the defence response under 225 is to give the jury a short indication of the matters that are in dispute. And then the prosecution witnesses are called and cross-examined. Section 226, the prosecution case is closed 
And at that point, the accused is given three choices. Firstly, to make a submission that there is no case for the accused to answer. So a submission that the evidence that the prosecutor has called at trial taken at its absolute highest fails to establish one or more elements of a charged act. And that might be accepted, might be rejected by the judge. We'll come back to this, but if the judge accepts that there is no case to answer, then they must discharge the jury in relation to that charge and direct a verdict of not guilty. Assuming that there is a case to answer, 226B or C, the accused is entitled to answer a charge by choosing to give evidence or call other witnesses to give evidence or both, or not to give evidence or call other witnesses. If they elect to go down the path of 226B, that is to call witnesses to give evidence, um, the accused is then called on by the trial judge to identify the names of any witnesses other than the accused that they may rely upon and the order in which those witnesses are to be called. And 231, though it's only performed occasionally, at that point, if um, the accused intends to give evidence or call other witnesses, the defence can give an opening address to the jury. So it happens at that stage, at the start of the defence case. After the defence case is conducted, then closing addresses may be given. Slide 49, 234. The prosecutor may address the jury after the close of evidence before the accused closing address. So this is usually a summary of the evidence given at trial that the prosecutor claims supports conviction in relation to each count. 235, after the prosecution closing address, the accused may then address the jury. And very limited, section 236, assuming the unusual event of the accused asserting facts which are not supported by the evidence, the trial judge may grant the prosecution leave to make a supplementary address. But usually 234, 235, the prosecution closes and then the defence closes. And 238, slide 50, the trial judge then charges the jury by giving those legal directions that are mandatory in the circumstances of the case. So um, matters in relation to the conduct of the uh, jury's role, matters concerning evidence, and often a brief summary of the respective cases, although it's not necessary. We'll get to that when we get to the Jury Directions Act. We're coming to the very end. Slide 51, alternative verdicts. See section 239 and following. So in certain circumstances in relation to particular charges, it could be that alternative verdicts are offered to a jury. And lastly, the judge's capacity to hear summary offences that are related to the charged indictable offences, section 242, unrelated summary offences, 243, and 249 presents a, a, a quite guarded permission for counsel who is briefed to hold a matter for trial to be excused from hearing. Um, so that is a matter that comes up from time to time. I'll go back one slide to 51. There's one last postscript, and that is that 239 and following, 239 is the provision that entitles the judge to discharge the jury from delivering a verdict following a finding of no case to answer and directing that an entry of not guilty be entered just to round off that idea relating to the no case submission by the defence. That concludes today's discussion. As mentioned, in our next discussion, we will be looking at appeals from superior court decisions 
and then we'll move on to bail applications. Thank you for listening to the Head to the Bar podcast. For outlines, links to resources and other downloads, please refer to the show notes.